0: New Year, Same Fish Bites Eli Sussman here for the first podcast episode of 2020, the first of very very many on the Fish Stripes podcast feed. Subscribe if you don't already. Follow us on social media if you don't already at FishStripes on Twitter and at Fish Stripes on Instagram where we are coming up fast on 1,000 followers. Uh, We cover the Miami Marlins like nobody else, and we want a lot of company on this ride heading into 2020. I wanted to plug a a couple recent website features for us during this offseason. Spencer Morris, who has a big background in covering the Astros, but he's really intrigued by the recent changes in the Marlins system, and he wrote up something on right-hander Evan Fitterer who was the fifth-round draft pick in this most recent draft for the Marlins, the very first pitcher off the board, and in some ways uh, one of the biggest pitching investments that the Marlins have made in anybody under new ownership. Uh, Remember, last offseason they signed Sergio Romo to a couple million dollar deal, but aside from Sergio Romo, Fitterer has been the most expensive pitcher acquired by the marlins under new ownership he's a guy that at the time i think he just turned 19 right around the right after the draft so obviously very young they're betting on his potential and spencer is pretty high on fitterer and his possibility of being a long-term rotation piece for the marlins he got his feet wet in the gulf coast league this past summer and he showed the highest ground ball rate out of all prospects in the Marlins system. So that's a tendency to watch. And he's someone that is very projectable where he already has good stuff, particularly his fastball and breaking ball, but there's the potential for him to add even more velocity to that, and he'll be an exciting guy to follow. Still a little unclear what his next step will be in 2020. Will the team be aggressive and put him all the way up to Clinton in low-A full season ball, or uh, will they queue him down in extended spring training for a little while and have him pitch another abbreviated season? Uh, time will tell. Uh, the other feature comes from Tyler Wilson, who, like Spencer, is going to be primarily sticking on the prospect coverage side. He wrote up uh, the whole backstory of Aaron Northcraft, who was a recent non-roster invitee to Marlins spring training on a minor league deal, coming off a great season for Triple A Tacoma, the Mariners affiliate. But uh, there's so much more in his entire last decade of professional baseball that led up to that point which was a big jumping off point to get him this deal and put him on the verge of realizing a dream and pitching in the major leagues he doesn't have any major league experience right now but ever since coming back from a series of injuries first a partially torn ucl in his elbow and then a hand issue as well uh, a couple procedures that kept him out nearly two full years he returned to action and since then both in the mariner system and then prior to that pitching internationally uh, he was lights out he changed his arm angle he has a very low release point that he th- throws from uh, doesn't have top end velocity but it's because of the angle that he throws from and now his ability to consistently throw strikes that has opened up a whole new um, possibilities for this guy that um now in his late 20s considering how much of his prime that he lost to injury it's um all of a sudden, he has a new lease on his baseball life and certainly somebody to watch in spring training that could potentially nab a roster spot. Uh, seems like a really genuine personality, someone that gained a greater appreciation for, for playing this game. After missing all that time because of injuries, and uh, we're really curious to follow his journey from here, both of those articles on Evan Fitterer and Aaron Northcraft on the website fishstripes.com and one more plug for a new thing, I finally got around to setting up the Fish Stripes YouTube channel. Previously, I'd uploaded some stuff on my personal account, the Eli Sussman channel, but I thought it was best to um, anything that's specific to fishstripes things that we embed on the website and share snippets of on on social media um where i put it up on youtube and there's not really any limitations to the lengths of the videos uh, so we already upload some stuff this past weekend there's going to be some exclusive things that we put on youtube and uh you that we won't spread around to other platforms you'll have to subscribe to Fish stripes on youtube to get it there so go ahead and subscribe uh, only a handful of people have so far so you'll be one of the first and we appreciate everybody that follows us on this ride Now, on the rest of this Fish Bites episode, I want to go in-depth on three particular recent events that have the potential to affect the Marlins in 2020, and even for years beyond that. Then, we're going to finish up with a conversation about who I believe to be the most obvious contract extension candidate in the Marlins organization. I can promise you, it is not who you expect. (laughs) This past week, Starlin Castro finally found a new home. The the Marlins infielder the past two years was a free agent for the very first time, and he has signed a two-year deal, two years, $12 million guaranteed with the reigning World Series champion, Washington Nationals. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that he left the Marlins. He was sort of being squeezed out of the team even during this past season, if you'll remember. Uh, Acquired originally by the team in the Giancarlo Stanton trade, and he was considered somewhat of an albatross. Like um, He was very expendable to the Yankees. On the Yankees, he's being pushed out of a job by top prospect Glaber Torres, and now with the Marlins, he's being pushed out of a job by former top prospect Isan Diaz. He was put into the deal because he had a couple years remaining on his contract before that, at um, eight-figure digit 8 figure salaries, both in excess of $10 million in 2018 and uh, over $11 million this past year, he, the Marlins held a $16 million club option on him for the 2020 season, and they chose to decline that, instead uh, issuing him a $1 million buyout. So he doesn't fully recoup all that money that he would have made on the club option in this new deal, uh, but all things considered, he makes out relatively well considering that um second baseman there the free agent market has been oversaturated with second baseman this year in a year that if you've looked around the league you'll notice that free agents are doing very well for themselves relative to the previous couple years Uh, the one exception to that for in the most part has been second base where there are just so many players out there that play that position and don't have much other flexibility Uh, In reporting this deal, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic noted that Starlin indicated a very strong preference for remaining at second base. Uh, In 2019, as Isan Diaz was tearing it up in AAA, and for the entire first half of the season as Starlin was really struggling offensively, uh, the team eventually called up Isan in early August. And that shifted Starlin from second base to third base. Uh, In third base, a position he had very minimal experience at any level of pro baseball, it was totally foreign to him. But uh, because he had slumped so badly early in the season, uh, and the Marlins wanted to trade him, and uh, if not even dump his salary, just a part of it, just open up the space for them to play Isan regularly, they weren't able to find a taker for him. And uh, but they wanted to keep him in the lineup. On a hop, what a play by Castro, up and throws, got him, wow, Starlin Castro. It's
1: been a week and a half over a third, or it's been ten years, what a play.
2: Now, fantastic reaction time by Starlin, one step into the hole, comes up with that baseball. Well done, Starlin.
0: So they moved him over to third base and that shifted Brian Anderson out to right field. And from that point forward, Starlin's bat actually caught fire. He was Excellent offensively down the stretch. Uh, anyway you slice it, he was the best hitter on the Marlins for the last several months of the season. And uh, that's if not for that hot streak, he probably would be settling for a one-year deal, just like Jonathan Scope did, just like Cesar Hernandez did. A couple other second basemen in the same age range as Starlin, uh, both that had their own flaws, and both of them took about one-year, $6 million deals. Castro was able to get a, a second year added on to that. A guy that, even at his worst, Starlin is a bona fide Major League player. I think the question moving forward is whether he's a true everyday player. The Marlins just did not have many competent bats that were Major League ready these past few years, and that uh, allowed Starlin to um, expect himself to be in the lineup every single day. He played all 162 games this past season after playing 154 the previous year. Easily the most playing time of anybody in the Marlins organization during those two seasons, Uh, 34 total home runs, including career highs last year in both home runs and RBIs. He's a guy that uh, the big mystery is going to be distinguishing between the terrible first half he had and his resurgence later in the year. Which one of those is more indicative of what he's going to do moving forward? during the first part of the year what was so strange about it is that he was making contact at a very high clip one of his lowest strikeout rates of his career early on um the problem was that this is where i find uh, some stat cast data to be very useful we could tell that his launch angle was all out of whack he was pounding everything into the ground and Uh, The one thing that's really changed for the worse about Starlin as his career has gone on is that he has lost some athleticism. He came up to the majors as a plus runner, and his uh, sprint speed has gone down to right around the league average at this point. And um, to be very blunt, there are some situations where uh, he doesn't exactly hustle to the max (laughs) trying to beat out ground balls. So even his his full athletic capability, that's not necessarily all that... Relevant because he um, he he could say he underachieves those measurables sometimes uh, because of his frustration. Uh, regardless, when he's hitting the ball on the ground, it's um it's it's very bad. It's usually not going to go very well. He grounded into a ton of double plays uh, during each of the last two years, and whatever he, adjustments he made right in the middle of the season, they allowed him to get the ball in the air more often, and he led the team in home runs over those last few months of the year and as i mentioned a career high overall in the season home runs some of that of course helped by the juiced ball that was in play this year but of course he was playing half his games at Mar- marlins park which this coming season is going to have smaller dimensions and we're going to get into that in just a little minute um but last year was one of the most pitcher-friendly ballparks in baseball especially in terms of suppressing home runs anyway you slice it um his full season stats were decent and the Nationals aren't making a huge gamble on him. That's not compared to like how much they invested to bring back Steven Strasburg. And um, they've added a few other complementary pieces uh, aside from Strasburg, with Castro being one of them. So he's not necessarily a lock to play every single day for them, but he had a preference to stick at second base, and that's a position that they had available. So he's going to get his wish. In that department, for his age 30 and age 31 seasons, he's going to be in the division. And you're going to see him really soon at Marlins Park because the Nationals are visiting Marlins Park in the very first homestand of the year, beginning on March 30th. Uh, I'm, uh, it's unclear where Castro will bat in the lineup. The past few years, he was accustomed to batting in the top half of the lineup. But the Nationals, even with Anthony Rendon leaving, they, of course, have some very intriguing players from Trey Turner and... Adam Eden, Juan Soto, um, Victor Robles is a guy that could continue to take strides forward. Um, At Top prospect Carter Keyboom is expected to have a pretty significant role on their 2020 seasons. So I would say, in most cases, Castro's going to be batting in the bottom half of the lineup for the first time in, in several years. That'll be a big adjustment to him. But he gets to join a contender. Anyway, you sliced it, the, the Nationals... Um, in the most pessimistic view, there's still going to be a very competitive team coming off a World Series with a lot of returning talent. And uh, just a final word on Castro as a Marlin. He was the guy that, when the trade was reported, he w- he expressed some dissatisfaction through his agent about not wanting to be involved in another rebuild. He was he went through the coldest years of the Cubs rebuild. As soon as he came to the Yankees, they, well, they rebuilt on the fly. This first year there, they missed the playoffs and they sold off at the trade deadline. And then 2017, he, um, as the team, immediately sprung back to being good again. He had his roles somewhat reduced. I think some of that was injury related as well. Um, but he wanted to finally be in the middle of a contending team. And it seems he's going to get his wish with the Nationals while he was with Miami. Uh, he put up overall really decent numbers, especially relative to his teammates. Um, and there was not a single bad word about him being with the team. He seemed to really embrace being a veteran presence on the team, and he was he was cooperative with the rest of his teammates. There's uh, there's really nothing there um, about him being anything less than a great professional on and off the field, and we so we appreciate his time there it'd be ideal I guess if he had started off 2019 hot and uh, made himself tradable in the middle of the year when it was clear that the organization was moving in a different direction Um, but I mean some of that's just not fully within your control if you look at from 30,000 feet up the overall picture he was exactly what the Marlins had expected and of course accepting him allow them to acquire a couple other prospects in that stanton trade and we're going to see how George Guzman and Jose Devers go from here but the the first piece that has resolved itself um, as as we begin to finally get far enough away from those rebuilding trades to judge them uh, picking up Castro as basically a salary dump uh, proved to be a very decent investment for pretty much everybody involved everybody gets their way out of this no hard feelings and uh, I imagine that Castro will get some nice warm reception from the crowd when he makes his return to Miami about three months from now shortly after the Starlin Castro news broke the Marlins made an addition for themselves on Friday signing switch pitcher Pat Venditti what does that mean well, you can either throw with your left hand, you can throw with your right hand, or you can switch between your hands. Pat Venditti is the only active switch pitcher in the high levels of professional baseball right now. And uh, I could spend a whole episode just on Pat Venditti. He's an interesting guy. He, he has some major league experience. Um, you may not have noticed it. I'm not, he hasn't pitched very often against the Marlins. But he has bounced around to one to six different organizations over the past five years, making his major league debut with the Oakland A's back in 2015. Then Toronto, Seattle, he was in the Phillies organization in 2017 and didn't make it to the big leagues. More recently with the Dodgers in 2018 and with the Giants in 2019. A guy that overall has 68 innings of major league experience. Uh, an ERA right around five, fielder independent pitching matching it right around five. So his results have been pretty much replacement level in the major leagues, but it's a really small sample. He's been in professional baseball forever. He was drafted in 2008. And um, I'll give you one guess who do you think Pat Venditti was drafted and developed by? He's a guy that the Marlins have just signed. If the Marlins are targeting a a player, someone that doesn't have obvious standout success in the major leagues, there's got to be a connection there. So I'll give you about five seconds. Guess who drafted and developed Pat Venditti in professional baseball. Of course it was the Yankees. It's always the Yankees. When in doubt, the Marlins acquiring somebody... It has to be an ex-Yankee considering all the connections that are currently within the Marlins front office. So Venditti spent the first seven years of his pro career in the Mar- in the Yankees organization not a high priority at any point. He was a former 20th round draft pick out of um, Creighton? Creighton University, which doesn't exactly have a great legacy for baseball. He was actually drafted in consecutive years by the Yankees, both in 2007 when he didn't sign and uh, then in 2008 as a senior signing. So he's he's not a guy that ever made a lot of money out of pro baseball, was never a high priority. And uh, when it was clear that he wasn't getting a major league look in the Yankees organization, he signed with the A's as a free agent and immediately made it to the major leagues. So he throws with both hands. All right, and um, that creates some very interesting situations because, as you know from following baseball, there is a significant portion of the population that switch hits from both sides of the plate. And uh, on the mothership at SB Nation, they did an interesting breakdown about the the quandary that comes up when switch pitcher Pat Venditti comes up against a switch hitter
1: he was playing for the Staten Island Yankees in the minor leagues against the Brooklyn Cyclones. Mm. And switch hitter Ralph Henriquez comes up to the plate. And now there's a little bit of like decision making happening because Henriquez has just seen uh, Pat Venditti warm up with his left hand. Okay, But when he gets to the mound, he has his glove on his left hand and he's getting ready to pitch with his right hand. So, Ralph switches to the other batter's box. Okay. So, then Pat Venditti goes, Well, i am just pitched with my other yeah. hand now. Screw that. So, he takes off his glove and he switches to the other hand, at which point Ralph goes, Well, I'm just going to switch to the other batter's box now. And this happens back and forth for a significant amount of time. A while. <laughs> before the game comes to an absolute screeching halt. And the umpire spends, no joke, six minutes. Six Holy. solid minutes on the field trying to figure out, how to deal with this situation that Pat Vanditti's very specific physiology has introduced into this game. Wait, so what, what else? Was, like, was this the start of an inning so they could kind of just like uh, this mess was, around? This is, ended up being the final at-bat of the game. <laughs> the Brooklyn Cyclones were behind by five runs and they had two outs already. So very meaningful. So very meaningful, yes. Put an asterisk <laughs> on this game big time. Uh, No, it meant nothing. It meant nothing. It was just a bunch of dudes having a pissing match over a very specific rule that had not yet been written. And as a matter of fact, Major League Baseball watched this happen (laughs) and said, we need to get a rule on the books as soon as possible. Oh, boy. So that this never happens again. Sir, something is happening in Brooklyn right now. (laughs) You need to see this. So MLB puts a rule on the books, and they ended up not needing it for another seven years, which is how long it took Pat Venditti to get called up. Oh, and okay. A's. And then he, he did pitch his uh, MLB debut in 2015. Wait, so what, did the, what was the actual rule that they decided? The rule they landed on basically lets the pitcher decide what hand he wants to throw with when okay. he gets to the mound. The actual text is, A pitcher must indicate visually to the umpire-in-chief, the batter, and any runners the hand with which he intends to pitch which may be done by wearing his glove on the other hand while touching the pitcher's plate. Okay. So you walk up, you pick what hand you want to pitch with, and then the batter decides what box he's going to stand in, and then you just do that at-bat Okay, so and that's per at-bat. Right. um, So he can switch in between batters if he wants to, but as soon as he goes up to the pitcher's plate with that ball in his hand, he's got to pitch with that hand for the rest of the appearance.
0: Yes, that led to the passage of a new rule in baseball to specify how the order of events are supposed to go when a switch pitcher comes up against a switch hitter. It's ultimately the batter that gets to um, make the final call, where he sees the the arm that the pitcher declares with, and he's able to give himself the platoon advantage by stepping to the opposite side of the batter's box. In the Major Leagues, Venditti's experience is pretty split evenly between facing lefties and facing righties and of course if he were to have it his way every single plate appearance would come with him having the platoon advantage righty on righty or lefty on lefty Um, but he has faced a total of about 40 about 40 plate appearances against switch hitters in his major league career and um so what sticks out is it's great that you could throw with both hands and um it's somewhat interesting that Venditti at this point in his career he um has reached a pretty consistent approach both ways regardless of which hand he's throwing with he has a sinker and he has a slider in between those pitches it makes up about 95 percent of his offerings at least that's what we have from the stat cast data uh, it'll very occasionally mix in a changeup in those situations uh one thing that was immediately mentioned in the initial report which came from john paul morosi of mlb network is that um there's a new rule coming to Major League Baseball next year, the three batter minimum. It means that when a new reliever comes into the middle of the game, he either has to face a total of three batters or he has to pitch all the way to the end of that inning if it doesn't take three batters to, to reach the end of the inning. And Venditti being a guy that in the vast majority of his plate appearances, he has a platoon advantage. Um, instead of seeing the kind of mixing and matching that you used to see, in um some bullpen management this was never really an issue with Don Mattingly anyway I I I think uh, less so than any other team the three batter minimum has a a very small effect on the Marlins because Mattingly has never been a guy that is overly obsessive with matching up left left and right uh but Venditti being a guy that can obviously just turn around in in most situations and and have the better in an uncomfortable situation uh, he's a guy that even if he's not a star and there's no indication that he's a star he's a guy that 34 years old and um a 34 year old journeyman this is he's not a high priority for the team there's a reason they were able to get him on a minor league deal with um no strings attached but um the fact that he's able to simply do this makes him it it extends his career it probably wasn't all that clear whether he would make it back to the big leagues and it's still not a sure thing but this is a clear opening to do that on a Marlins bullpen that uh, does not have a a whole lot of experience whatsoever or a whole lot of uh, superlative performers Uh, the one uh, concern I guess that sticks out to me about Venditti and we're we're gonna get into more of his positives lately but the concern that sticks out is that he does have pretty wild platoon splits in the major leagues he, against right-handed batters, lifetime 286 batting average against him with a 904 OPS. Whereas against left-handed batters, 179 batting average against a 570 OPS. He's been great against lefties. He's been very not great against righties. Against lefties, striking out about 26% that he's faced in his career. That's good. Majorly average for against a position player in, in the low 20s, striking out about 26 Uh, against right-handed batters it's a different story only an 11 percent career strikeout rate against right-handers and the issue is that um it's not so much that the lack of swing and miss it's that he also allows a lot of fly balls on batted balls for him one of the lowest ground ball rates um, of pitchers in recent years at the major league level including last year last year was even higher than normal he spent most of last year With the Giants' AAA affiliate, before making two little appearances at the major league level, and for the AAA team, the ground ball rate just in the mid 30s. As noted in the previous segment, for the 2020 season, the Marlins are bringing in the fences by a handful of feet in dead center field and in right center field, and now they go out and sign Pat Venditti, who has a little bit of a fly ball issue. But I think you guys know by now where I stand on this, that um, although it was uh, made some interesting news that they brought in the fences, if you actually look at the number of balls that would be affected by the change, it's a very small number. So overall, over the course of the season, um, even if this guy were able to stick on the roster for an extended period of time, uh, you're talking about maybe one or two situations the entire year as a reliever, where he would be affected one way or the other by this. Not a big deal, just... Just an observation, just a little data point that has to go into this signing and uh, the pu- the potential fit that he would have if he's able to make it onto the active roster. But before we move on to our other topics, a few more details about Venditti's pitch mix. Uh, the reason why he was such a late round draft pick by the Yankees, why he didn't make it to the majors until nearly age 30, and why he hasn't really stuck around that much is because he has far below average fastball velocity. He throws harder with his right hand. It used to be high 80s fastball, but now as a 34-year-old, just as in almost all other cases, the velocity has dipped a little bit. So now more a lot of 85, 86, 87 fastballs from his right hand, and as a lefty, it's um, even lower than that, 82, 83, 84, far below average fastball velocity, and that requires him to mix in a lot of sliders. Uh, almost as many sliders as fastballs, alternating between the two to keep batters off balance. And he, he still gets a pretty decent uh, differential in velocity between those pitches. The the breaking ball is in the low to mid-70s. So what stuck out to me about the slider is the spin rate that he has on that pitch. There's not a perfect correlation between spin rate and effectiveness of your pitch, but uh, especially with breaking balls, it is... A factor it's you want to have as much spin as possible, and um, that will generally help you miss more bats and for a guy that has way below average velocity and who we mentioned is uh vulnerable to fly balls when opponents put it in play, it's very precious for him to miss bats whenever possible, either to get himself ahead in the count or to put batters away. I ran a query through statcast where looking, since 2016 so over the last four major league seasons all the pitchers that have thrown at least 300 sliders in the major leagues during that time and there are several hundreds of them it's uh basically hundreds (laughs) it's a it's and he is elite in that department when ranking all them by spin rate out of the hundreds of relievers the last four seasons that have thrown at least 300 sliders in the majors, and Venditti just crosses that threshold with 325. Number one on the list was Kyle Crick. His spin rate, nearly 3,200 revolutions per minute on the pitch, on average. Number two was Trent Thornton. Number three was Marlins' fellow reliever, Jeff Brigham. So most of those pitches for Brigham came just this past year. 29.34 uh, RPMs on his slider. And that's the reason why... I'm really intrigued by Brigham heading into the new year, assuming that the Marlins are able to keep him heading into opening day. Uh, Right behind him, Chad Sabatka. And number five out of hundreds of major league pitchers who threw sliders the past few years in average spin rate is Pat Venditti. 29.13 revolutions per minute on his average slider. Uh, To go down the list a little bit further, Number seven is Chaz Rowe. Chaz Rowe very famously gets extraordinary movement laterally on his pitch, um, and he's been in the majors now for a handful of years. Number nine in this category, slider spin rate, is Sergio Romo, who of course got a a lucrative deal from the Twins, and the Marlins were interested in re-signing him. Uh, Number 11 is Adam Ottavino, who is an elite reliever now with the Yankees number and right behind him is Walker Bueller, who is one of the rising young potential aces with the Dodgers. It's again it's not a perfect correlation between that spin rate and being a successful pitcher and not even perfect between that the spin rate and being a great pitch, but it's um, it, it's better than nothing. it's it's certainly the most appealing thing that I found about Venditti, and some optimism about why he could be effective uh, for the Marlins potentially considering his handedness is going to give him somewhat of an inside track to sneak onto the roster. It depends what the Marlins do from here. I've been pretty consistent with my thinking that they should be investing some more in it in one more veteran reliever that has late ending experience in the major leagues. And there's still a few of them out there that should be had on one year deals. It'll cost a few million dollars. Whereas Ben even if he makes it to the majors, he'll be earning about the league minimum. And then he's under club control for the foreseeable future. If the Marlins are like what they see from him and he makes it through the year, then he's not even arbitration eligible until twenty twenty two. Get next season at a bargain rate. And um, assuming that Venditti doesn't pitch high leverage innings, this is going to be a guy that's extremely affordable all the way through the next handful of years. But that's certainly looking ahead very far because first he has to make the roster. Uh, In in my mind, it's a safer bet to go after somebody that is more experienced at the major league level. But uh, Venditti is someone that has gotten pretty rave reviews as a as a person for his intangibles that he brings to a team so if nothing else just a a positive presence to have around spring trading and someone that is once we see him in games during the grapefruit league it's very easy content for people like us at fish stripes to get fans curious about these games that uh, ultimately don't count uh, an interesting signing and uh, again probably not the last there's now in total He's only the third pitcher that has been a non-roster invitee to Marlins spring training. Usually that number is significantly higher, even with uh, all the interesting arms that the Marlins have internally that want to get a look from the coaching staff. Um, I expect a couple more signings, hopefully one at the major league level. um, But Venditti is uh, certainly a a um, low-risk, (laughs) medium-reward acquisition that fits in with the direction that baseball is heading in 2020. The third and final current events topic on this Fish Bites episode, the 2020 Don't Blink Home Run Derby in Paradise, which took place this past Saturday in the Bahamas with a a whole lot of Marlins participating. This is the second straight year that I've played close attention to this home run derby and uh, even more so than last year a lot of marlin's involvement um uh, first and foremost it's meant to um build up baseball in the bahamas it's organized by uh, a couple bahamian professional baseball players and uh, it's meant to uh, grow the game in the bahamas which has become an increasingly fertile ground for finding professional baseball talent uh, most notably on the Marlins, um, one of their top overall prospects right now is Jazz Chisholm, who is a native Bahamian, and this is the, uh, he may have participated all three years. This is the third annual year of the event. I know he participated last year, and this year he was one of the featured players as well. So were um, Ian Lewis, who was a recent international signing by the Marlins this past summer.
2: Jerron uh, Sands, who many of you know is the one of the co-founders of iba elite which has been responsible for a number of these guys getting signed to uh, minor league baseball contracts as he drives that one well out beyond the boundary on his foul swing of the bat to give him a grand total of seven to open things up for team fox that's pretty good for ian considering look at the size it's probably 150 pounds yeah he's, he's not a big guy but he's definitely generating some bat speed able to get some good power on his shots there
0: they also had Anthony Seymour, who was developed by the Marlins. A, he returned to the team this past year uh, in the minor leagues, and uh, at this very moment, he's actually a free agent. But in in the lead up to the event, and even introducing him at the derby, he was introduced as a Marlins player. So even though he's a current free agent, I'm not sure if he's going to resign with the team. He's another Marlins affiliated player, also participating. Monte Harrison, for uh, he participated last year as well. And the winner of the 2020 Home Run Derby in Paradise was Lewis Brinson with 32 total home runs, including 13 in the championship rounds. He got stronger as the derby went on. And as someone that watched nearly every single swing of the derby, I can tell you that he was not getting cheap shots. He hit some of the most majestic home runs into the ocean out of anybody.
2: <laughs> yeah. But yeah. some of these guys, like, come on way well, up. Well, Louis
0: Brinson right now is yeah, hitting some absolute taters. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's got, hitting them right. He's got
2: eight already. He's <laughs> yeah. the way you did. This is
0: all, almost all
2: was the same distance. Yeah, yeah. Lou, Lou's
0: Louis, he's a freak, man. Uh, you know, Louis so, just got a tough one for him. Yeah, yeah.
2: So so he's now got nine home runs already. And <laughs> I, I think last year you um, you you hit last after a Todd, wasn't it? Did you yeah. go against Todd? Todd hit it, had a pretty good round. <laughs> And we were saying he put some pressure on you, and and, and you just came up and just it's so easy <laughs> <laughs> made it look so easy.
0: Dang, how many swings are they take? Meanwhile, well, I don't know they how many swings they take, but he's
2: Who got eleven home it? runs already. Twelve swings, okay, so twelve, 12, 12 was, swings. That's just thirteen. And a team out of fifteen. 12, 15 thirteen home runs out of fifteen swings. That that's pretty impressive.
0: I it should take a second to explain what makes this event unique. In that they set up a platform on the beach that is facing out to the ocean. You have a you have a guy on the dock. There is a dock jutting out into the water, and that's where the the pitcher is throwing BP to you, and you aim directly out into the ocean where they set up a, a makeshift fence on the surface of the water. Not quite the same dimensions as a typical professional baseball field. Probably more like three hundred feet instead of three fifty or four hundred. Um, But still a a home run derby and you're limited to a certain number of swings. It was about 15 swings per round and um, there were dozens of competitors. um, Listed originally on the lineup were, were 30 hitters, all of whom have some sort of professional baseball experience. Uh, Isan Diaz was on that list as well, the fellow major leaguer, and so I'm a little unclear what happened because uh, I think just the, the day before the derby, he was listed on the itinerary, on the lineup, and he did not ultimately play in the derby, but uh, out of the 30 players, uh, the vast majority of them that were listed on the lineup did end up hitting, and Brinson led the whole field. He had won the stronger first rounds in order to make it into the final eight and then in the second rounds, he had 11 more home runs to get himself into the finals, and then into the finals, he un- unseated one of the fellow Bahamian players, who um, you'd expect had somewhat of a home field advantage, who had a lot of local support. Also, during this, this weekend, a former Marlins World Series champ, Charles Johnson, was in the area. He has... Um, he was there in some sort of association with Major League Baseball itself. They brought some film crews down there, and um, this was one of the priorities of this whole setup was to grow the game in the Bahamas. It's become an increasingly fertile ground for uh, for baseball talent, and they held, just the day before the Derby on last Friday, they held some uh, impromptu camp for young players, teaching them some of the basics as hitters as fielders as base runners with the actual players themselves as guest instructors so that was really cool and i'm sure you're gonna see uh, on major league baseballs uh, on the website or on their social media feeds i think they're gonna be sharing some of the specifics about uh, those camps and growing the game for the next generation of players uh, i want to focus on the derby on saturday because of course brinson won uh, Jazz Chisholm was another standout performer. He made it into the final eight, and this is a, it's a really cool event. And Brinson seemed to take a lot of pride in his victory. Uh, I went out of the way to record highlights from all the Marlins players that were participating. You can find that on our YouTube, our new YouTube page, the Fish Stripes on YouTube, where I uploaded all the rounds for all the Marlins that were participating, including all three of Brinson's rounds, all 32 of his home runs, and uh, all the commentary to go along with that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline. Of course, during Major League regular season action, Brinson has been one of the biggest disappointments of this entire rebuild for the Marlins, the centerpiece of the Christian Yellows trade. Two years in a row, uh, breaking out of spring training, Penciled in as the everyday starting center fielder, and in 2018 losing that job in the middle of the year due to injury in 2019 uh somehow even far he was below such a low bar that he set in 2018 and he, he somehow r- disappointed even more than that this past season getting demoted to triple a new orleans where he spends about half the year trying to readjust, trying to fix things and he returned to the majors in august Given one other opportunity to play on a nearly regular basis, and the offense just still isn't there. He was uh, one of a very small number of baseball players last year in the major leagues who didn't hit a home run. He had a couple hundred plate appearances in the majors the year of the juiced ball. And you can make excuses for Marlins Park. Uh, There was one notable home run. I remember one notable would-be home run that he hit in Colorado over 420 feet away that was robbed from him. But you can make all the tiny adjustments you want. He's simply one of the worst offensive players in the major leagues over the past couple years for a guy that was universally regarded as a top prospect now now for his lifetime in the major leagues 183 batting average a 531 OPS I ran the research uh, a few months ago right at the end of the regular season and uh, the outlook is very grim you just cannot find other outfielders in the recent history of baseball on any team in any situation that as 24 25 year olds which is um these days at that age It's still relatively young, but not all that far uh, removed from entering your prime of your career. And to struggle to this extent um, in the majors over a very significant sample, up, up over 700 career plate appearances in the majors and not produce, has been mystifying. He's been great in spring training each of the last two years when he went down to AAA. He demonstrated more of that power using their own juiced ball and heading into this new year he still has a minor league option remaining Uh, breaking ties with him right now would be selling low and um, you wouldn't expect to get much in return at all which is leading to the expectation that he's still going to be with the Marlins in 2020 and at least coming out of spring training he'll once again have somewhat of a decent shot of breaking camp with the major league team especially now that there's an active an extra active roster spot I want to be crystal clear that Branton's derby performance means absolutely nothing for a potential turnaround to his major league career. It's just the latest reminder that he's still a premium athlete. He was universally regarded as that great prospect, the consensus number one Marlins prospect entering the 2018 season because he has these exceptional tools. His power, his throwing arm, his defense, his base running, the only question was was the hit tool, and of course, what's given him so much trouble in the major leagues are uh, secondary pitches. Anything besides a fastball, he's had a lot of trouble just recognizing that out of the pitcher's hands, getting any sort of contact on it. A, a lifetime strikeout rate in the majors, right around, are we up to 30%? 29.8% in the major leagues. And uh, this derby performance won't do anything to change that. He was given very hittable pitches, as you normally would during a derby. But it's another reason why you just can't quit on Brinson quite yet, because he's still motivated to—he's still in shape. He's, he hasn't let his roster spot or his major league salary change his, uh, his work habits off the field. Uh, I mean, the question is whether he just has all the ingredients, tangible, intangible, to make it click in the major leagues. This is going to be coming into his age 26 season, turning 26 early in the regular season. And um, even though the Marlins have added outfield talent this offseason in the name of Corey Dickerson, they have some great outfield prospects on the way, held in the same kind of high regard that Brinson was not that long ago like like Monte Harrison like Jesus Sanchez and further down like uh, J.J. Boudet and Cameron Meisner and Connor Scott and Gerard Encarnacion there's a lot of talent coming this is really uh this is a true make or break year for Brinson and uh even more so it's there's gonna be a lot of scrutiny early in the year Uh, I'm glad that this performance should have helped his confidence a little bit and just showing the talent that's still there for being able to uh, do a lot of impact on a baseball. I mean, that's it's a very basic element that you need as a, as a p- potential impact player. It's it's everything else that remains a big question for Brinson uh, heading into spring training. Anyway, I encourage you to check out all those Derby highlights. Uploaded to YouTube, Fiststripes on YouTube, as well as on Fiststripes.com. I, I wrote up a full article embedding all the highlights and, and putting everything into a full perspective. It's a it's a great event that they have going on in the Bahamas. And uh, as recently as last summer, signing Ian Lewis, trading for Jazz Chisholm, uh, th- those won't be the last Bahamian players that you hear about potentially in the Marlins organization. It is is a growing hotbed for baseball talent guys that are really enthusiastic about the game and a whole, a whole lot of credit to um to lucius fox and todd isaacs they were the co-organizers of this event from the beginning and they were participating in the derby themselves this past year so credit to them for putting on this event because it is really making an impact and helping baseball become even more of an international game <music> From every corner of the baseball industry, uh, pundits, reporters, fans, and opposing fans, there's almost a universal agreement that the Marlins have done very well for themselves this offseason. A handful of offensive improvements, signing Corey Dickerson, Jesus Aguilar, trading for uh, Jonathan VR, and even a high-quality backup like Francisco Cervelli who could have effects on the other side of the ball Uh, the signings of yemi garcia and some of these non-roster invitee pickups the decision to swallow the rest of Wei and chen's contract and to free up another roster spot to protect some of their high upside young players Uh, you put it all together and they've spent money that almost replaces all the money they had coming off the books last year except this time they aside from the dead money on the chen contract they don't have any inefficient deals on their books so they've really cleared up all their financial flexibility for the long term in these moves taking on little to no risk in a lot of these signings and um leaving themselves open to trade some veterans in the future to get even more young controllable assets if necessary but at very least on paper, this team is far improved from where they were in 2019, where they had a 57 and 105 record. At this point, it's very hard to see them losing more than 100 games again with the current roster. And there's a lot of upside because of their much improved farm system, one that MLB Pipeline ranked as the most improved farm system during the year of 2019. The handful of Trades they made during the middle of the year to creatively improve and address positions. How well they did during the 2019 draft, where they finally used that high position they had in the draft order. And an international free agency, yet again, spending big money on several key infielders in particular that have a lot of upside moving forward. It's This organization is certainly trending in the right direction any way you look at it. And uh, maybe that's not saying a whole lot considering where they've been the past couple of years, but it's it's positive nonetheless. And uh, it's going to start showing itself at the major league level in the very near future. So fans can be excited about it, uh, but what should we do about it? What are the cons- Why is it happening? For um, Not to oversimplify it, but that's a key question that we should look at, is how did this happen? And it's easy to credit some of the changes that have come to the organization of course, at the ownership level, getting rid of Jeffrey Loria and David Sampson and and bringing in guys that are more collaborative and that are more experienced. Um, A lot of them have New York Yankees roots, but some of them from other organizations as well. Building out the international scouting department, uh, building up the internal education department that this franchise now has uh, for both its English-speaking and its foreign-language-speaking players and getting them to... um, Integrate with one another in ways that probably wasn't the case under the previous ownership. A lot of new faces that have come in, but the one prominent old face that has carried over since the beginning of the old ownership for nearly two decades now, Michael Hill has been with the Marlins. He is entering his 18th season as a Marlins employee in their front office after previously playing professionally, after previously attending Harvard University. And Michael is still here, and he's entering, uh, based on most recent reports from John Heyman of MLB Network, this is the final year of his contract with the Marlins. It took some people by surprise when he survived the transition of ownership, considering he was in the room, when a lot of their their previous poor baseball transactions were made and the fact that the initial reaction to some of their rebuilding trades were more negative and uh, if you want to be objective about it yeah the value that they got in some of those initial trades uh, wasn't quite as clearly a net positive as their more recent transactions Uh, there was some reason to believe that he might not stick around that Derek Jeter and Bruce Sherman would uh put out their own search to find a new leader of baseball operations. Michael Hill now in his, this will be his seventh season as president of baseball operations of the Marlins uh, in title. He, he's the guy that is making a lot of big calls for this team. And uh, we know under the current front office, it's a little more collaborative with what, what Jeter brings, what uh, Gary Denbo brings. He's, his focus is more on amateur and uh, prospects in player development but he has a very loud voice and he has a strong personality in that war room but Michael Hill has been here through it all and things are going so well um, we think well generally speaking um, and even if that doesn't pay immediate dividends if we can all agree that this has been one of the better off seasons in recent Marlins memory then shouldn't somebody be rewarded for that and entering what is believed to be the final year of his contract michael hill seems to be a pretty obvious extension candidate the marlins probably would not have been keeping him uh, all that long if he were overpaid none of this is public information but we i think we're led to assume that he is rather modestly paid by baseball executive standards considering um, the lack of major league results that his teams have had uh, all of last decade, failing to have a single winning season, even under the previous front office. There were um, there were clear concerns about his track record. And he's someone that, fair or not, uh, as a public speaking personality, he, he's friendly, he's accessible, he's not necessarily inspiring. And I'll, I'll give you a soundbite right here to give you an example of that.
2: Well, I think we just went with what the draft was presenting us. You know, we always go for the most impactful piece. Um, as I've said, there there were some very impactful college bats at the top of the draft. So good for us um, that we had the opportunity to, to you know evaluate um, those college bats. And you know, as I said, we're 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 happy to, to, to add one um, to the mix to you know to, to give us that you know another uh, potential impactful you know position player piece that. You will know, we'll, we'll help us win championships here in South Florida.
0: Hill doesn't exactly fit the new age baseball executive prototype of being analytical and being so innovative and being white to be blunt about it. That maybe doesn't matter all that much. If we just see the bottom line transactions that are being made with him involved in the collaboration, there's a lot to be said for having continuity and assuming the Marlins haven't done this already maybe they they did behind the scenes because info about these executives isn't quite as transparent as it is about players maybe they've already worked out uh, a longer deal with him it just seems it, assuming they haven't it, it just seems uh, unnecessary to risk breaking up what you believe is is finally a functional formula within a front office that shouldn't be taken for granted as recently as a couple years ago, there were doubts about whether bringing in Gary Denbo and um, the way he interacted with um, his new, quote, teammates, whether that was all healthy and whether this organization was on the right track. And, and now we have what amounts to not just this off season, but really almost a full year of information showing a, a lot of creative decisions being made with Michael Hill, if not the only one involved with it. And maybe even not the loudest voice in the room, he's in the middle of it. As much as I advocate for spending on young, talented, homegrown players, most notably Brian Anderson, I think maybe that's the one area that jumps out to you as uh, something that the Marlins have overlooked in that they've not yet reached any of these uh, low-risk, long-term deals with some of their most talented, homegrown players. That's going to be a very critical step for them because as will investing in free agency on uh, high-caliber players this offseason spending on a lot of decent role players, but not necessarily any guys of um, a certain impact pedigree that you can count on, there's going to come a point um, within the next year, I'd say, where you have to see the Marlins taking some of these bigger risks in order to, to lock up guys that have a uh, super high potential to really put this team back into contention and so that's still to be determined is how hill and company spends on starter level everyday caliber or from top of the rotation like free agents or their own homegrown players They, they have to select very carefully there is somewhat of a science to this it's not every decision will work out but they have to um they'll have to take these risks eventually and they'll have to prove that they can distinguish between several comparable options. Players that have similar similar tools or track records, they'll have to show that they have the analysis and foresight and the developmental infrastructure to get the most out of these players moving forward and bring this rebuild all the way out on the other end. But at this juncture, considering considering the recent events and how many of them uh, appear to align pretty well with the team's overall objective... Just don't, if it ain't broke, then uh, don't make all that many changes to the decision making structure that the Marlins have. So if Michael Hill needs a new contract, and uh, despite all the dysfunction that he was around earlier this decade, this is a guy that's been with the organization almost as long as anybody else that is currently with the Marlins team. He was the one key holdover in the front office in the baseball decision-making structure from uh, the old regime. And uh, finally, we've, we've reached a point where he is um, hes helping and bring this team to the right direction. Whether it happens prior to opening day or even during the season, my vote is for continuity in this Marlins front office, now that everybody appears to be on the same page. I'm curious what you guys have to say about it. When I floated the idea on Twitter prior to this recording, it was met with uh, a lot of initial skepticism or um, disagreement even about Hill's status on the team. So be sure to reach out to us on fishstripes.com on Twitter, Instagram, about your thoughts about Michael Hill, and this offseason in general, as always, I greatly appreciate all the Marlins fans that support us, that are part of the Drives community, that inspire the conversations that we have on the podcast and on the website. 2020 is going to be the most exciting year in a while. So tell a friend. We want to get as many perspectives as possible to be part of the same community and, uh, and help us break down what should be a really interesting year around the organization. I'm Eli Sussman. Go Fish!